Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the, the fallout from uh, the most famous or perhaps infamous gathering of golfers in the history of the state has dominated the week following the breaking of the original story by the Irish Examiner's Aoife Grace Moore and Paul Hossard. Had to get in that plug. But while there are many people understandably angry uh, about that story, another issue, the return of schools, has hundreds of thousands of people very anxious and good luck to all the students, teachers and parents over the coming weeks as they set off into the strange new world of education at this point in history. In that vein, we decided this week to take a look at how schools and education in the time of COVID are faring in another part of the world. Cambodia is a fascinating country whose people have been to hell and back over the 40 years or so following the coming to power of the Khmer Rouge regime in the 1970s. Colin Byrne, a native of Dublin, is pursuing his vocation as a teacher out there. He's also the head of Sea Beyond Borders Ireland, a charity set up to mentor teachers in the developing world. And he joins us for today's podcast. Colm, how are you? I'm very well, Mick. Thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad now. Colm, to kick off, tell us, how did you end up in Cambodia? Sure. Yeah. And great to be on the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Uh, so I was a teacher, Mick, in uh, Dunabate for 10 years. So part of my identity is I'm Irish. Another part of my identity is I've lived in Cambodia for six years. And another part of my identity is I'm a teacher. So how did I originally come out here? It's funny, my, my brother used to slag me because he would be private sector and I'd be public sector. And of course, he wanted to get a, the dig in of teachers' holidays. But believe it or not, teachers' holidays, July and August were Something I struggled with a little bit, to be honest. There's only so much Tour de France you can watch. So I came out here uh, to Cambodia seven years ago, full of innocence and great intentions as to what I was going to do. The initial plan was to stay for a couple of weeks. But to be honest with you, pretty much within a very short period of time, I knew Cambodia was for me. I found the country magnetic. And the reason I found the country magnetic was because of the people. Like all countries, as we've seen in our own island over the past week, people do good and bad things and people do things they shouldn't have. But generally speaking, Cambodian people are, are, are special. So uh, that's why I moved here. And, and, and secondly, Mick, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, quite a, a scattered person, always in a rush. And Cambodia couldn't be more, more opposite than that. It's very chilled out. Um, ordering a coffee in Cambodia is vastly different to ordering a coffee in, in Ireland. There's a different system. Uh, it's an altogether different experience. And personally speaking, it suits me very well. So I love living here. Great stuff. And the country itself, Colm, now people, I suppose, of a certain age anyway, will have a, an image of Cambodia there being, I suppose, peripheral to the, the Vietnam War, certainly in uh in that time in history, the Khmer Rouge 
came to power in the 1970s. Just tell us a bit about that and the impact that that regime has had on the country all the way up to today. Yeah. And I've been thinking that, about this uh, a lot recently in light of John Hume's death and what he did for, for our peace process in Ireland. And in Cambodia, the scale of it is altogether massive compared to Ireland. So we had 1.7 million people were killed. Uh, and not only that, it was also make the type of people that were killed. So 80% of teachers were killed. 93% of teacher trainers were killed. Deliberately targeting the, the so-called educated classes, those who can read and write. So that was obviously devastating at the time and has left a left legacy on a couple of fronts of obviously uh, PTSD, landmines, but also a real education crisis because of who was targeted. The majority who survived the, the Khmer Rouge are illiterate, and that's, it has impacts today. And you mentioned 1.7 million, column. That's out of a population, I think, of around 16 million. That's a huge proportion of people. And am I correct that the Khmer Rouge, their idea was what one might call a demented form of communism, that you go back to the year zero and you construct society from effectively a Stone Age beginning point. And as you say, part of that was you exterminate effectively educated classes and anybody who might impinge on your, your, your philosophy in that regard. Exactly. Yeah. So it was deliberate targeting of a particular type of person, the leaders in society at the time, number one. Uh, and number two, to try and bring about a different type of society. And the population, of course, in Cambodia wasn't 16 million back then. It was far smaller. So what, what died in our troubles? 3,000. And, and look at the legacy that that's left. 1.7 million have died here. And the ramifications from that, from an educational perspective, are pretty unique, to be honest with you. And they're gone now, I think. They went around 79, 80. They were ultimately overthrown. What kind of um, government is there in the country now? So we have had uh, a prime minister, Hun Sen, who's been here for a long time. And we have a minister for education at the moment who is very good. Our organisation would have a close, close enough relationship with him and with the ministry. You know, as I said earlier, all countries have, have good and bad in it. And all, all countries have the reformers and, and the intransigence. But our focus is to work with the people here who are, who are really trying to, to create change for Cambodian children. So it's, everything that's happening now, there'll be a brighter future. It's a democracy. There are parliamentary uh, elections, and those elections, there's two main parties here. The main opposition party were, were banned, so that the ruling party would, would be in power now for, for over 30 years and have a stronghold, but have some, have some very good people, in it, including the Minister of Education, who's, who's working with us and, and other, other people to try and create a brighter future. Okay, and then just, again, just another small picture of the country. Education, standard of living, what would the main industries be there? How do people learn across? Sure. So top three are tourism. Uh, so tourism represents 32% when you include tourism and the auxiliary benefits. Then you have agriculture. And finally, garment industry. So anybody listening to this podcast could be well be wearing something from Cambodia. Obviously, tourism and, and the garment industry, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, but have, are going through very tough times, whereas agriculture is holding up a little bit better. Right. So, it, it, as you say, it's a developing country uh, in that respect. Now, 
life under COVID-19, what has that been like for the last, what are we now, five months anyway, at least, or a bit longer than parts of Asia, because right back to January, February? Sure, yeah. Um, and even prior to, to COVID, to be honest with you, Mick, Cambodia trails way behind its its nearest neighbours in terms of if you're an educated person in Cambodia and you can read and write, and that's a fair if, that's a big if, uh, and you want to earn money, the chances are you, you, you can emigrate to Thailand or Vietnam. So standard of living there would be far superior in terms of wages than it would be here. Uh, COVID-19, however, from a, a medical point of view, has had a, a minimal impact. Uh, we've only just over 250 cases here. Uh, we've had no deaths. There have been other absolutely profound impacts in terms of the economy and malnutrition and children being out of school. But from a pure medical point of view, the whole of the Mekong region, so Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, numbers of of deaths and cases would be would be very small. What's that attributed to, Colm? Well, there's a range of theories. Being honest with you, Mick, you know, sometimes when people give give their opinion on on education or, or teaching, uh, and they're not teachers, that that can irk me. But from <laughs> ah, yeah, but in ge- in general terms, there must be a few. No, only kidding. My, my armchair reading of her, what I've read is numbers of factors. Number one, we've got a very young population. Number two, we've got a very warm climate and no real air conditioning. Number three, 80% of the population live in rural areas. And number four, we would very much have a predisposition here to other viruses like dengue fever uh, is huge here. And other mosquito-borne illnesses, which perhaps some people believe is leading to to lesser cases of COVID. It's interesting. And from the point of view, you, you well, I presume it's something the likes of the WHO are keeping an eye on, but you'd wonder what can be learned in that respect for uh, for the rest of us who, who, who have not been as fortunate, certainly in relation to COVID. Quick thing, just you mentioned there, Colm, about educated people leave. I mean, in that respect, would you see something of so-called brain drain, not dissimilar to what we might have had in this country going back to the 70s, 80s and that, where an awful lot of people left, educated people and that, and therefore they weren't around to contribute to, to rebuilding an economy. Is there an element to that in Cambodia, would you say? Uh, yes, more than an element. Um, and also even beyond educated people or those who can read and write because uh, people are educated in different ways, but there would be a significant amount of people who would emigrate to Thailand or Vietnam or even among our staff, people who would, whose mothers would emigrate to Thailand and send the income home. You know, like Ireland, Cambodia is a small country that's surrounded by uh, bigger countries. Like Ireland, we have a troubled relationship here, historically, with our, ne- with our nearest neighbour. Um, and like Ireland, Cambodia has been very much blighted by emigration, people leaving, particularly to, to Vietnam and Thailand, but elsewhere also. Okay, and you mentioned the Khmer Rouge and that something like, I think, did you say it was between 80 and 90% of teachers were murdered by them? And, okay, you get rid of that regime and a new one comes in, attempts to rebuild society. You're starting from a point in terms of children, the first instance, where the teachers are just not there to educate children. I mean, it's a frightening place to be starting from it in this day and age, isn't it? Yeah, and even I'd go a further step back, Mick, before you go teachers educating children, we need to look at teacher education because 
teacher, if teachers themselves struggle with the, the kind of basic concepts around addition, subtraction, or how to teach reading, or to read themselves, you know, complex sentences, you're starting from, from a very low level. So the majority or half of Cambodian children here in grade two, so the equivalent of second class in Ireland, can't, can't read a single word. Uh, so I think, you know, there's been international testing done on a worldwide stage. So the bottom three countries would be Senegal, Zambia, uh, and Cambodia. So starting from a very low level, at the same time, there's great opportunity because there's a great thirst for education. And when you can put the quality into education, it can make a real difference. Yeah, and you mentioned Senegal and Zambia. Now, I, I, I may not be 100% correct here, but I would have thought that those countries in terms of a stage of development would be in, in other aspects, way down the ladder, even from Cambodia. Yet I suppose it's a reflection of that history that's in Cambodia, that, that, that that's where the country's at in terms of education. Absolutely. And I think another thing, Mick, as well, as well has been donor money. And we have a lot of charities here in Cambodia, you know, probably a bit like Zoom calls in Ireland. There's no shortage of them. The problem isn't quantity. The problem is quality. And a lot of money has gone in, to be honest with you, and like donor building schools or building a library. But if, if the teacher can't teach the children how to read uh, or if the, the children can't read themselves effectively, um, development is complex and education development is particularly complex. So it's not just working with teachers, though, as well. It's also working with local communities, women particularly mothers who can be real game changers and strive for better. And teachers, Colm, as you say, a, a lot of them in terms of their standard of education. So how does one become a teacher in Cambodia? Well, it varies. So initially after the, the Khmer Rouge, uh, there was obviously 93% of teacher trainers killed, 80% of teachers were killed. So there was no formal qualification for it, is, is the truth. Uh, so people went into the the classrooms without without qualifications or a lot an awful lot of them half them in where I live wouldn't have completed high school so secondary school uh, so they would tend to struggle sometimes with the concepts um, and how to deliver them uh, the pedagogy being, being another issue and in, in in Cambodia as well we have this phrase you know qualified teachers and unqualified teachers when you say the pedagogy what, what are you referring to there Colin the how to teach so when I was a teacher Mick. You know, I, I obviously, to be a teacher in Ireland, you need to get a certain amount in your leaving cert. And then in, I, I trained in Marino. You learn the how to teach, you know, how to break down concepts. You learn how to, how to put children in groups. You, you learn what type of questioning to use. Because teaching is fundamentally about relationship building. And we have, you know, qualified teachers and unqualified teachers. But there's no such thing as an unqualified teacher. Because we don't go to unqualified doctors. We don't go to unqualified dentists. So the, the two kind of criteria that we need to set is number one, uh, do they have the content knowledge? So do they have the content knowledge they're meant to be teaching? And number two, do they have the pedagogy? And when you combine those two and you can get teachers up to a sufficient standard, the results are remarkable because if you can get a teacher who's able to teach the children effectively, that's an absolute game changer. But when you put it that way, Colm, I mean, are you, are you suggesting that we're now 40 years on nearly from the Khmer Rouge being overthrown 
and attempts to rebuild society. And even at this juncture, that teachers, a lot of them, don't have what you call the content knowledge, that they're sufficiently educated themselves to be teachers. Is it still at that stage? And if so, why has it taken that long? It's a very good question. Uh, I think it's a process. And it's a process to get from from, uh, A to B. And to get from A to B, it takes a long time. Uh, Change here is slow. There's sometimes uh, intransigence. Sometimes, to be honest, there's donor interests as well. Um, so it's it's a long process. And when when you have a lack of people in the country who uh, come from an educated background or come from a background where they know what best practice looks like, uh, then you then you have a real problem. That's why we're we're slowly but surely not only working on our own charity, CB on Borders, Mick, but we're also working with the Cambodian Ministry. Uh, so as they are developing their own appreciation, because you've got some fantastic people there, uh, they just need the, they need the belief, they need the knowledge uh, and a bit of experience. So it's a process, but the changes when it's done right, you know, are remarkable. Children in our programs, their test scores improved by 45 percentage points uh, on average. And that's not our testing that we correct, that's independent. So it shows you, I think, the value of a teacher. But the other kind of point I, I may say, Mick, on it as well is when it's, the quantity is too big. So you try and change 2 million children education. It's very, very hard. It needs to be done in the correct dose. So it needs to be done in the quantity, a sufficient quantity, absolutely. But it needs to be in keeping with development. So as you get the proper people who are equipped with the, with the knowledge to be able to, to pass on the information because education is fundamentally people. Relying on people, and I saw a statistic there. You might fill me in. You mentioned two million children, yet less than three percent reach minimum standards. Is that correct? Yeah, less than three percent. So two point one percent of Cambodian children reach minimum standards in in reading and in in science and maths. Uh, it was less than three percent. As our founder Ed says, you know that's a rounding error. It's absolutely minuscule. Um, you know, you compare the number of Cambodian children who are in, in school by grade 10, so by fifth year, is 10.6%. So when they're 15, the numbers who are in grade 10 is 10.6%. In Vietnam, it's 85%. Why don't children stay in school? Uh, is it because the building's not good enough? No. Is it because they don't have access to resources? No. Fundamentally, Mick, if the children can't read or write by the time they're in third class, in Ireland, second class, or third grade here, they're not going to stay in school. Because if children aren't learning in school, they don't stay in school. Just run that by again, and particularly in the context of Asia, and to a large extent, Southeast Asia, and how it has been, in world terms, a hub for technology and advancement. Over 80% in neighbouring Vietnam are in school at 15, and about 10% in Cambodia. 85% Vietnam and 75% in Thailand. So the, 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 the countries in the region, to be honest, who would be doing least well uh, and way behind, talking decades behind, would be Cambodia and Laos. But the donor aid in those two countries, Cambodia and Laos, uh, would be quite different uh, in terms of at the minute, Laos would receive a lot more uh, donor aid. But that's not to say that donor aid is, 
get good donor aid and bad donor aid, but we've got real real problems here. Um, but when it, when things are done right, it can be very powerful. Is there any third level education there? Is there third level education? Yeah, the percentage of Cambodian children or young adults who attend third level though would be would be very small. I think, you know, to be honest with you, I taught when I was a teacher in Ireland. I taught fifth and sixth class and done a base educate together. I taught senior infants for a year and almost had a panic attack. But the most important <laughs> schooling, Mick, I think research would 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 tend to be unified in it are, are the early years. Uh, so we've done a lot of initiatives in terms of secondary school, high school, third level, which is important, obviously. Um, but it's really the primary areas, which which is our focus, because uh, they're they're the really critical make or break years. Absolutely. I think everyone's agreed on that. Yeah. And the, the other thing that strikes their column in that regard. So in terms of prospects for kids, they're leaving, as you say, nearly 90 percent of them have left by the age of 15. Um, there aren't very many prospects beyond unskilled labour. Am I, am I right in that? Yeah, you would be right. And it's not even that they've left by the time they're 15. You often get like 12, 13 year old children in, in first class because they're, they're later. Uh, and education perhaps um, can slip and, and, and it can be lower down the pecking order. But slowly but surely, I think that's changing. But yeah, our economy here, Mick, would be uh, garment industry. Uh, so a lot, a lot of young people, children, uh, would be working in textiles, also obviously farming. Uh, but education is going to be the game changer. You know, if we're to build an economy, um, make the pie bigger, make our economy bigger, education will be will be critical to that. Class sizes, Colin. Class sizes on average are forty-five, yeah. which which might sound reasonably high. I don't know what what was your class size, Mick? I'd say it was higher than that, was it? Oh, it was 45, yeah, but I mean, certainly it wasn't as good as it is today. Well, no, sorry, when I say as good as, as low as today, a lot of people say, and correctly, that they're still high for where we're at in terms of development in this country, but 45 does sound high, but I suppose it's some way manageable. It's a secondary consideration, yeah. uh, no, being honest with you. We, we get great funding from the INTO, the Irish National Teachers Organisation, and they've done a lot of great work on on class sizes in the island of Ireland. But in terms of, of, of our consideration, we need the teacher who's in front of the 70 children, the 45 children, whatever it is, to be able to teach. So I know a fantastic teacher uh, in Badenbong. Uh, so P, you know, her class sizes would be would be very big comparable to, to Irish uh, class sizes. But children would much rather go to her class than, than, than other classes, perhaps, because she has the capacity to teach. So we're not at the stage yet where we can look at at reducing class sizes because we need the people who are in the who are who are delivering the fantastic Cambodian teachers who need support, need belief, need training. Uh, we need to help those teachers help the children uh, and class sizes. That's a consideration, yes, for the future, but we're way off there. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing, Colm, parents and appreciation of education among. The adult population, uh, as as you well know as a teacher, the, the the parental input can be a huge thing once the school day is over. What kind of attitudes are there or is it left entirely to what happens within the school? Great question. It's massively important, uh, is, is the honest answer. 
Uh, and while our work is, is focused on quality teaching and systemic capability, the real drivers for change as well are the parents. And the parents, to be honest with you, tend to be the mothers. So when we would do parent evenings or invite communities in, it would be 97%, 98% mothers. Uh, and if you can get the mothers to develop an appreciation for education, for reading uh, in particular, that can be a real driver for change. Often here, though, the parents are illiterate, so they can't read or write themselves. The majority who survived the Khmer Rouge will be illiterate. But they can still do things around questioning their children how their day was, asking them what happens in the story. So they might not be able to read it, but they can still encourage, cajole. I know my own education. You know, my mom from Skibbereen, she played a massive role on that in terms of, you know, believing in it and put on, putting on the subtle pressure and, and also creating a bit of accountability with the teacher. So parents, communities have a massive role. Yeah. No, Colm, uh, as you say, uh, Cambodia fortunate in a very small way in terms of COVID, very few uh, cases. But at the same time, I understand you've still been locked down for most of the last four or five months, school-wise. Absolutely. But just to, just to take you up on that point, fortunate from a medical perspective, but we've had like a 45% yes. in malnutrition. Um, here already, so our tourism industry is is being absolutely decimated, and same with the the garment industry. And when there aren't social protections, so I don't know what the dole is in Ireland, but an awful lot of Cambodian people who get laid off get get absolutely zero, or if they're fortunate, they get forty dollars from from the government a month. So that's what thirty euro. Um, so. Yeah, I think the ramifications for, for Cambodia in relation to COVID are, are serious. Uh, we, we've had schools closed since March 16th. Um, the government have tried to initially restrict inter-county travel, inter-provincial travel. Uh, that's now gone. So they're just restricting very much the people who come into Cambodia in terms of you have to pay a, a deposit of $3,000 if you want to get in and then if somebody in your flight test positive to stay, uh, you have to give over the three thousand dollars, and then finally, you have to stay in a government facility for for two weeks. So, the numbers are way down. I think ninety eight percent is is what tourism is down in Angkor Wat. Yeah, I, absolutely, and that's a that's a point well made. I mean, we might look from the outside and say, yeah, very low numbers things isn't too bad, but quite obviously, as you say because of the stage of development of the economy, the ramifications for people literally and literally putting bread on the table are still massive. Yeah, it's visible, Mick, being honest. I know where I live in CM Reap, there's visible signs of people uh, in severe poverty. And the danger is, to be honest with you, is then what's the approach to that? Is it to give out food straight away, which, you know, which can have merit in certain circumstances? Um, but we need to look from a development perspective as to, okay, what are the immediate things that need to be done in terms of medical food issues like that? But also looking, let's learn the lessons of the past and look, look a bit long-term in terms of massive schools here are due to reopen in October. And if the children don't go back in October, end of October, the chances are they're never going back. And if they're never going back in October, November, that means they more than likely can't read or write. And if they can't read or write, their income is way down. So I'm worried, we're worried in CB on borders about COVID, about its ramifications. 
uh, for society here, but also more long term. So, you know, I think the numbers of of charities here, ironically, has gone down, uh, but the need has definitely gone up. Tell me about See Beyond Borders, Cullum, and the organization's connection to this country. So I came across See Beyond Borders uh, three and a half years ago when I met the founders, Ed and Kate Shuttleworth. A lot of NGOs, charities here would give you the, the sales pitch as to why they're terrific. A lot of passion here, but sometimes a lot of passionate people do a lot of damage. With Ed and Kate, it was a little bit different. Uh, they, br- they brought logic uh, and they brought a thinking process. So what they set up the charities to do, what we do is we train teachers. And we also work at a systems level to create change in the ministry. In terms of our connections on the island of Ireland, Mick, they're, they're numerous, as we talked about our respective histories. Uh, also from, a, from a, a partnership basis, we would have links with the Irish National Teachers Organization, who are a strong supporter of ours with teaching colleges, educators, the Department of Education. And finally, uh, we've gotten some money from Irish Aid, which has been very valuable as well. And you have connections with DCU, I believe? We do, we do. So we were with the Cambodian Ministry right pre-COVID. Uh, so we have connections with, with DCU, the National College of Ireland, and, and also the Department of Education. Because one thing that's happening recently, which is a positive thing in development, is it's no longer the, you know, hand over the check, off you go, lads, spend the money. We're looking for something a little bit deeper. So it's a partnership approach to development. So we're looking at the researchers the policy analysts uh, in Ireland, for those people to work on a peer-to-peer basis uh, with Cambodian policy analysts and researchers uh, on a partnership base. There was something similar in, in Vietnam uh, that was trialed called VIBE, and we're, we're very much building up those links in Ireland. So we've in our application to the charity uh, register there, and I think Irish people have a predisposition to getting education, you know, we talk a lot in Ireland about our carbon footprint. Something I'm interested in developing is, is our education footprint, because we, we do get things wrong in Ireland. But one thing I think, generally speaking, we can be proud of is, is our education system, and particularly our primary uh, educators. Are there other Irish people in Cambodia on, uh, with your organisation as well, Colm? And in a broader context... Is, is there such a thing as an Irish community out there in any form or whatsoever? So in, um, in Cambodia, we, where I live in Siem Reap, there would be about six Irish people, so very small. Uh, and in the country, it'd be far more down the south of Phnom Penh. Uh, so we would have a small enough community, but we're pretty loud, we're pretty active, uh, and we're keen to build up relationships with, with people in Ireland. We've a research coordinator there now, and we have a, a country coordinator there now, and obviously a board in Ireland. Um, but funnily enough, in Ireland, so on the island of Ireland, there's less than 10 Cambodians, uh, less than 10, so on the island of Ireland, which is absolutely minuscule. But we are very much connecting those, those eight people, north and south, uh, to not just CB on borders, but also to the Cambodia-Ireland Changemaker Network, because... Cambodian people, we've gone to, to Ireland with, with Cambodian people. They're naturally interested in Ireland for the reasons I outlined. Troubled history, troubled relationship with a nearest neighbour. Small country, you know, Ireland is a small country making a big impact. So 
I see exciting things for, for Seed Beyond Borders in Ireland, but also for Cambodia in Ireland. And you see yourself staying out in Cambodia, Colin? Absolutely, 100%. My partner is, is Kamai. I love Cambodia. Um, I have a special affinity to the place. It has several positives, which I've outlined. It's probably not the nicest place in the world to be sick in, to be honest with you, Mick. But the pluses far outweigh the minuses. And long term, I'm here, committed to here. And yeah, it's really, really, really good. You know, we talk about, without sending too grand, things you do in your life or a calling or whatever. And I know there's rightly a lot of cynicism around doing good and making a difference. But I, I do love my job and I do love working for an organization that I, I believe in, espouse in. So long term, absolutely hope to be here. If I may just say, say one thing, um, we've had a bit of success over the last while, Mick, meeting people for a, for a coffee or, or having a chat on Zoom. Uh, if anybody is interested in hearing more about the work of CB on Borders here in Cambodia, anybody knows somebody who can make a difference for us, we're looking for people who can invest in us. So invest their time, number one, or invest their arrogance, uh, number two. But it can be number one without number two, and it can be number two without number one. And if anyone is ever interested, my name's Colin Byrne. We're CB on Borders, and we'd, we'd love to, to chat to you. Go to Margaret, Mick. Colin, thank you very much. It's been fascinating talking to you. And I have to say, the whole concept of spreading education, it's, um, oh, it's so, so worthy. And I don't mean that in, in any any type of a, a condescending way or anything whatsoever. But, I mean, it, it really is so important, as we all know, and particularly among a people who've been subjected to the worst horrors of uh, various kind of regimes. Colm, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. I'd like to thank you for listening, folks. I want to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer on sound. You can subscribe to us on all the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.cliffordandexaminer.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. And we'll see you again soon, folks. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.